Welcome to the Proto-Future Podcast, the world's first and most supremely opinionated enthusiast podcast for modern American passenger rail, transit, urbanism, walk and bike ability, inclusivity, and equity. This is Proto-Future Prologue Episode 3, Rochester, Minnesota. In this episode, I will detail the history of my long, slow, slippery slope of cognitive decline into modeling the near future. As I write this, I've just returned from the A Modeler's Life podcast get-together at the Amherst Show in Springfield, Massachusetts. My most massive thanks to the evil overlord, Lionel Strang, and all involved at the AMLHQ's activities and dance party, chiefly Kevin Marks, Tracy Boyd, Scott Lister, and Bruce Wilson. It was also a pleasure to meet with friends old and new, Cynthia Priest, Dave Abeles, Kaylee Zhang, Chris Adams, Gene Wilson, Bruce Kelly, Peter Borchards, Jonathan Myers, Matt Dawson, Matt Milliken, and innumerable others. I'm forgetting at the moment. I would also like to give an especially deep and heartfelt thanks to three listeners of this podcast whose comments were nothing short of validating and inspiring to my efforts. Bill Ford, who sent me a kindly email before Springfield and immediately introduced himself to me upon meeting at Chris Adams' layout. We shared a fantastic meal, he was one of a very few who attended my Sunday clinic through the winter slushy, and his words of encouragement will stick with me for a very long time. Thank you so much, Bill. Ron Kleiss of Mindmount Models surprised me late Saturday by declaring himself to also be a listener, and specifically lauded my honesty and political assertiveness. Please, please spend an exorbitant amount of money at Mindmount Models, as his kindness deserves in kind. And finally, to Steve Vaughn the Younger, whom I'm only now, I'm pretty certain, was that one listener whom all those years ago in January 2018 approached a baby, cisgendered, naive, and immature little me about the original BGT, complimenting me and inspiring me to restart the whole damn thing, continue this project, iterate on it, and lead me to where I am today. This is all your fault. Thank you. Anyway... Onto this final PFP prologue. To those interested in following my presentational exploits, this is essentially the tale encased in the third clinic of my modern modeling anthology, effulgently alluded to in the previous two episodes. While potentially duplicative, I do find it important to set the record straight in greater, more narrative and explanatory detail, but if you still haven't had a chance to watch the clinic yet, I'd still strongly encourage you to do so even after listening to this, as it is much more visual, engaging, and I'd at least like to think amusing. I have reason to think I'm sitting on a gold mine of a discovery in the field of model railroadology, and, like any good scientist, I must spread my findings far and wide to any whom have the misfortune of being an earshot of or easily fooled by my clickbaity headlines. Otherwise, strap in. This is sitting at 29 pages, and is one of, if not the longest script I've ever put together, definitely ever since starting the monthly production schedule. Incidentally, apologies for next month's episode, it may or may not suffer a tad, but I'm damn well proudest of it, as it coalesces everything I've been thinking of, urban planning, modeling, and all, into one complete package. 
A small programming note, I actually had a lot of fun with the chapter headings last time, and I thought it worked especially well with the more anthological setup of a bunch of semi-related stories all working simultaneously and in tandem towards a unified purpose. Seeing as this is a similar compendium, but one not likely to be repeated again for a while to come, I thought I'd try this format again here. Incidentally, to reconstruct this timeline again from the ages, I went back and copied over the relevant entries from my Patreon blog, where I'd published these ideas for the first time, not actually knowing what they'd later turn into. Shameless plug, it's a great idea to get to know what I'm thinking of at any given moment, in addition to, you know, deferring the $200 plus a year it actually costs to host the website, not including equipment and time. Please, even a dollar a month makes a difference. Like, literally, a massive difference. It's not just as much the money as it is having other people think that what I'm doing is a meaningful endeavor. Anyway, groveling aside, on with the show. Chapter 1. As with many things, it all began over the pandemic. I was a member of the Penn State Model Railroad Club, and we entertained ourselves by giving Zoom PowerPoint presentations over lockdown. These ranged from club layout plannings to basement floor layout tours to prototype reports. As with my alcoholism, this aspect of pandemic isolation would have a lengthy shadow. As you know from the last prologue episode, I had long been reading Wikipedia articles and later watching YouTube videos on various light rail systems and transit projects throughout North America and later the world. I set to in my free time, absorbing as much information as I could on the concept of modern transit and just good transit in general. I knew a lot, but I was an amateur of amateurs, lacking any sort of cohesive thoughts and more just a general hope that I'd someday live in a city in which I could commute to work or pleasure by means of bicycle, streetcar, light rail, or competently done regional rail, which, in North America, is more endangered than my employment prospects. It's been long enough that I don't precisely remember how it began. It could have been a specific request from another club member who liked transit. It could have been part of my Herculean efforts to keep the club going over the pandemic. Or it could have been, and most likely was, succumbing to the extremist of boredoms. But those Penn State Model Railroad Club quarantine Zoom presentations finally encouraged me to professionalize my efforts. 130-odd slides later, and Modeling Modern Transit Systems was born, which I debuted publicly in October 2021 to NMRAX and in person at Indy Junction in May 2022. The central tenant was thusly. Not only has rail transit changed dramatically in the past four decades, with now 60 such modern transit systems having been built in 27 states and provinces, they are often built in a way that is directly applicable to regular model railroading subjects, from as simple as a streetcar visiting out front of an Amtrak station to as integrated as light rail or DMU systems running immediately adjacent to or on the same rails as high iron freight mainlines. Like any good science fiction writer, or in this case, near-future modeler, I must play fast and loose with the timelines a bit. To those whom are aware, part two of my clinic series, Passenger Service is Prototypical on Small Switching Layouts, technically postdates part three. After part one, Modeling Modern Transit, I started the presentation depicting what I've subsequently called my proto-future ideas sometime in 2022. However, while the idea was there and the outline was written in full, the PowerPoint proceeded in only fits and starts, often hitting impenetrable roadblocks for months at a time. Simultaneously with this, my in-person debut of Part 1 in the Junction taught me something important. I had a branding problem. While my presentation was universally acclaimed to those whom did attend, dishearteningly few actually attended. 
I attribute this mostly to the pre-existing reputation of trolley modeling as being a separate, largely defunct, subdiscipline of modeling, characterized by diametrically differing layout scope and design, as well as stupefying amounts of craftsmanship and obsession. Furthermore, my audience was likely further impeded by an opposition to modernism, to which you've already heard me seethe about at inexhaustible extent, so I will mercifully spare you any more of that here. Thus, though the spine of my presentation was that light rail and DMUs run alongside things you already model, a presentation title of Modeling Modern Transit Systems wasn't doing me any favors in getting people in the door to hear that thesis. I decided I needed to spread my ideas wider and more adeptly, so I chose the tried-and-true methodology of print publication. Given the timeliness of Pico's release of NCTD sprinters in DCC and Sound, I singled out DMUs as the mode of modern transit most adaptable to and interesting for traditional modeling, designed a few prototype-based track plans, and wrote a 12-page article in the style of the old Railroad You Can Model featurettes. While I recognized myself to be both a first-time and an insufferably loquacious author, I thought that it was easier to abridge than to inflate, and that the quality of the ideas contained within would speak for themselves through the twaddleish muck. So it decidedly stung when I was later ghosted by both Kambach and RMC, though I will say, with the podcast's recent success, Otto Vondrak has since reached back out to me, so I may have an article in my future yet. If you're willing to donate pictures of the Riverline, send me an email. Ah well, those boomers don't deserve me anyway, I thought at the time, and proceeded to resurrect my work by copying it over into a new PowerPoint, one paragraph per slide, and then spent practically all of my spare time in fall 2022 converting the text to image and debuting the 114 slide, much more sexily and clickbaitily named, Passenger Service is Prototypical on Small Modern Switching Layouts, to which I deceptively occluded the word modern in many a playbill, debuting at Springfield in 2023 to similar great acclaim. Being constructed after my grand idea arose, there is much more of my proto-futurism retconned into the conclusion of Modern Modeling Part 2, though mostly as a teaser to introduce the subject and whet appetites for what is to come later. But in the grand scheme of things, this is a mere side quest to my tale. Chapter 2. The Anywhere Railroad Cycling back three or four years, the Penn State Model Railroad Club was at the time, and still is, building a layout in HO scale. But I was not. At the time, I largely modeled an ON30. Yes, same track gauge, but no, different loading gauge and era, thus different models. If I wanted to run my trains on the club's layout, I needed to buy fully new trains exclusively for the club. As initially a modeler of 1890s O-scale narrow gauge, but now looking to literally anything post-1950s HO scale, the world once again was my oyster. But what to buy? An F-unit, a GP38, a Dash 9, and more importantly, what road name? You see, I lived in central Pennsylvania. While I'm not a native central Pennsylvanian, nor have I lived here for anything but grad school, in the intervening years I've explored every single county of the Commonwealth by motorcycle, and also explored most boroughs and townships over 15,000 residents in population to explore a population-weighted view of the state as well. But as much of a post-hoc association with the Commonwealth I might have, 
I always knew it to be temporary. The work never ends, but graduate school does. So it would be a poor idea to buy an HO scale locomotive lettered for a hyperlocal shortline, or hell, even Norfolk Southern, as there would be absolutely no guarantee that, wherever I would go next for a postdoc or later professorship, said local shortline, or even Norfolk Southern, would be even remotely in the local zeitgeist. My initial idea was to letter a freelance locomotive for the Titusville, Indiana, Tipton, and Southern, number 80085, whilst a friend lettered one for the Allegheny, Susquehanna, and Southern, number 455. But then a presumably much less offensive idea hit me. Why not choose a railroad which lacks a geographic association, something like a GATX or FERC's leasing unit, or a short-line conglomerate like Genesee and Wyoming, RJ Corman, or SMS Lines, or the much less appealingly named Patriot Rail? The idea here is that, though a prototypical locomotive, it is not necessarily associated with a specific place, so I could keep it as a just-for-fun spare for a new club layout wherever it is that I'd be moving next, something exclusively for entertainment, but fitting whatever type of fun I'd want anywhere, wherever I'd move. But while this idea of a prototypical model floating location was coalescing, three things happened at once. First, I became aware that a European manufacturer, Electrotren, spelled with a third E, released a married train set of Talgo passenger cars in HO scale. Then Bachmann released its scrumptious models of the Siemens Charger locomotives. And finally, I dug back through my internet archives and discovered a link to an old Shapeways model for an Amtrak Cascades wing car. <laughs> Oh my. Chapter 3. Spirited Series 6s. To understand how these things fit together, we have to go back a ways to my time in the Pacific Northwest and step away from modeling to discuss prototypes. Again, for the second time in as many prologue episodes. As you inevitably remember from the last PFP episode, Amtrak Cascades is one of Amtrak's most popular corridors outside of the titular Northeast, offering ten daily pre-COVID round trips between Seattle and Portland, with two each extending to Eugene and Vancouver correct, not to be confused with Vancouver, Washington, and plans for several more. Cascades was a 1990 state-sponsored consolidation of a mishmash of routes of similar scope but heterogeneous and unnavigable names and heritages. But the thing for which Cascades will forever be known is its rolling stock. Four Talgo train sets, Spanish-built, married coaches that passively tilt around corners through an ingenious mechanism that puts the axis of rotation floating in free space above the car body, allowing the train to tilt around corners through simple centrifugal faux force, sans automation or complex mechanics, and allowing you to eke out an extra 15 miles per hour of speed limit on any given track segment without any sort of modification to the right-of-way. Though they were known to be rough riding and occasionally wobbly, that was a result of the individual manufacturer's choice for one axle shared between cars instead of a two-axle truck and insufficient sway dampeners, not the fault of the passively tilting technology or the train set concept, and to that end, these errors were mostly corrected in subsequent renditions, the Series 8s. 
Most uniquely, Cascades will be remembered by modelers forever for three distinct features. Firstly, their color choice. With a distinctive livery of evergreen, espresso, and cream, Cascades warmly associated itself with both its landscape and the local culture. Mossbacks, as Pacific Northwesterners are called, are an outdoorsy and cappuccino-craving bunch, so a paint scheme hearkening to their sylvan and caffeinated preferences immediately intimated the train with the local environment, personal and natural. This does much more than can be said for Amfleets, or worse, Horizon Coaches, sterile syringes of the supremely creative Silver Circle or Grey Square variety, which could care less for whither in the world they are. Does your region have a unique identity? Yes? Well, tough luck. It doesn't matter to us at Amfleet. I mean Amtrak. Secondly, their bidirectionality. While the benefits of bidirectional trains are obvious to most modelers, inasmuch as you don't need to turn trains and can depart from a station in any direction in as little time as it takes the engineer to walk from one end of the train to the other and flick a few switches, freeing legacy stub terminals from their infrastructural confines, such can only be done if the opposite end from the locomotive has a cab. This has historically been solved in the least attractive way possible, either not at all, or by robbing Amfleet-esque metroliners of their traction motors and even passenger-carrying capacity just for the cheap excuse of a control stand in the vestibule. In my humble but irrefutably correct opinion, the blunt ends of a coach does not a cab represent, and insults the viewer as an inescapable and thoroughly inelegant bootstrap. Europeans have long solved this problem by building locomotive-style cabs into their trailing coaches, such that the prime mover of the train is distinguishable only to the trained eye, pun intended. Cascades, however, along with a few other routes throughout the years, preempted this conundrum by means of a most unique solution. They took decommissioned F40PHs, kept the control stand, but filled the fuel tanks with concrete, gutted the prime mover, and added roll-top doors to each side to turn the formerly mechanical compartments into a baggage car. It is thus that an aged relic of cubist railroading became a minusculely more modernized cab baggage unit, or cabbage. Not only was this a unique solution to a common problem, it was an ingenious reuse of existing equipment and a continuity of form and history through to an otherwise revolutionary new archetype. But most importantly to the ethos of Amtrak Cascades was its wing cars. The first and last car of each Cascades Talgo, one a baggage, the other an enigmatically named power car, had something very special. Curved vertical fins on either side of the car's roof, raising the profile of the passenger cars behind to that of the locomotive and the cabbage ahead. This was the 1990s, so F-59 PHIs were in, largely due to a voracious lack of competition. These were taller and more uniquely styled, the smoothed-out successor to the parent F-40PH on the other end, one of the last dying gasps of EMD before its tattered shreds were consumed by Caterpillar and later Progress Rail. To note, the F-59 was so tall as to match fully double-deckered superliners. But, two stories, the Talgos were not. In fact, one of their unique selling points was that they sat so exceptionally low to the ground as they negated the need for specialized raised platforms. So, how do you marry the height of a very tall locomotive to a half-height train set behind? With stylish sweeping vertical fins, said Amtrak designer Cesar Vergara. With absolutely no style, swagger, or intentionality at all, said every other American passenger rail designer before or since. And thus came a blip of beauty. 
Four Cascades train sets were built in Evergreen Espresso and Cream. Uniquely, a fifth was built in Surfliner Blue, Black, and Silver, initially intended for use between Los Angeles and Las Vegas, but most annoyingly, Nevada didn't follow up with state funding, so the Lost Vegas Talgo sat unused for several years near Blaine, Washington, was then purchased by WashDOT, repainted and cannibalized for its first and second class cars to lengthen the existing four train sets. The only leftovers were the two wing cars and the bistro cars, which sat for the majority of their life unused in Seattle's Soto Yard in a pitiful petite trimer, a three-car trainlet to nowhere. Two more Talgo train sets with better crashworthiness were ordered in the early 2010s. Let's take a moment to say fuck you to Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and any dipshit who voted for him, and also anybody who ever voted for any Republican ever. But these new Talgo Series 8s lacked the wing cars and replaced the cabbages with an ugly duck-billed cab car, so needless to say, while still operational today, they're dead to me. Chapter 4. Which one... Which one? Anyway, back to my own modeling. Previously on G4 Babbles About Industrial Design, we had the three necessary components to make a model of the Cascades Talgo, the new Bachman Charger locomotive, the Electrotrain Talgo train set, and the Shapeways 3D printed wing car. Despite my amateurish scratch building abilities, I could now make an homage to the most inspiring diesel passenger train to ever ply North American rails, period. But! If you'll recall, the only reason why I was building or buying a diesel train was for club layout purposes. And, if you'll recall, I was building something geographically untied, such that whatever effort I put into it, it wouldn't subsequently be wasted if I moved to a new place. As much as I loved Cascades, it too was tied to a time and a place. So, well, with Cascades out, the Milwaukee Talgos never having been put into service, except in, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, so let's take a moment to make note that a third world country now has more modern passenger rail infrastructure than the conservative Midwest, and the 1990s Talgo demonstrator similarly rooted to a time and a place in history, that leaves only one option left, the Las Vegas Talgo. Slowly, over the course of two years, I began acquiring the materials for my Talgo project. First, the base Electrotrain Talgo train set, then one 3D printed wing car, then add-on Talgo cars, then another wing car, then a Bachman Surfliner charger. I've since tried getting an old Athern DC F40PH and ripping the motor out to make a cheapo cabbage, but that didn't work out too well, so I'm currently waiting on my first Rapido purchase, a pre-ordered NPCU cabbage to finish off the train set. I'm going to be very poor after that comes through. But originally, the plans were to truly stick to the Las Vegas Talgo in the original Surfliner colors. Maybe pretend a light alt history that it was bought by bracket State Department of Transportation of wherever I move to next close bracket to complete the aforementioned excuse of a geographically decoupled train set just for fun. It truly started that way. It really did. I promise. The idea that it effectively became, well, that actually predates my construction of the train set itself. Chapter 5. Alt History Long ago, I read an article from the Seattle Transit blog on December 28, 2015, the height of STB content, entitled, We Need More Options Across the Mountains. 
That was an exceptionally snowy year, and Washington State has precious few east-west routes over the Cascades, so, the article suggested, why not offer a new rail alternative, which is usually more weather-resilient and significantly safer in adverse conditions than driving your own private hockey puck down a steeply graded bowling alley of death. In brief, it proposed that, if we already have several Amtrak Cascades train sets running north-south Vancouver, Bellingham, Seattle, Portland, Salem, Eugene, why not take one and run it east-west over the old Empire Builder route, Seattle, Ellensburg, Yakima, Pasco, Tri-City, Spokane, during more amenable and daylighty hours than the current midnight-ish Empire Builder schedule? This would provide a second daily frequency, if you count the Builder as daily and not nightly, between Seattle and Spokane, restore service to major eastern Washington cities, which lost it dozens of years ago, and, if it proved successful, why not resurrect the old Milwaukee Road right-of-way between Ellensburg and Ritzville for an even more direct route between the major end cities that, all of a sudden, would now become time-competitive with driving? This is a brilliant idea. Like, so literally perfect, why hasn't it been done yet? Again, it's orange-pilling a la not just bikes. The train sets exist, most of the old stations exist, the tracks are underutilized due to low tunnels, it's practically perfect. The only reason why we don't have a daylight train between Seattle and Spokane is because state officials instruct a dispatcher not to let the train turn left at Auburn towards Stampede Pass. It's infuriating and just so, so dumb. At the time, being as young, high-minded, and inexperienced as I was, I was naively hoping to someday start planning a dream layout. But living in Washington, with so many people modeling various north-south Cascadian rail routes of the Northern Pacific, Southern Pacific, Union Pacific, Great Northern, or any number of fully copy-and-paste logging railroads of otherwise indistinguishable character, I got a sense it would be wiser to find a way to set myself apart in the local modeling scene, rather than do something that had been done 50 50 times before in a 50-mile radius, just in different colors. So the idea came to me. Why not model this new east-west Seattle-Spokane route, but as the modern passenger train? I was hopeful it would be built, but why wait around for it? Since it would effectively be a prototype-based route, just plus a train station here or there, I could use actual track arrangements straight from Google Maps. And why not prototypical traffic flows as well? But now I could have a purpose of route across the entire layout. It wasn't just a slice of random freight railroad with some freight going from here to there and some freight going from here to elsewhere. Now it was a journey. A journey from Seattle to Spokane, linking the undergrads in Gonzaga and Central Washington University to their family, linking the Querio living in Capitol Hill to their family back in the Tri-Cities, linking the suburban Tuckwillans to their weekend getaway at the Yakima Trolley Museum, or the Manhattan Project National Historic Site at Hanford, or the wineries along the Columbia River. And all of this helps the freight, too. Obviously, there'd be the normal freight running back and forth along the hypothetical layout, but something special happens to it when confronted with all the passenger trains. For one, as I've certainly alluded to before, the passenger trains make it more exciting. You get more bang for your layout track and operator buck. More, faster, and more frequent trains bouncing back and forth of each end of the layout, creating more importance, intrigue, and snafus for each equivalent stretch of track compared to a 
freight-only layout. Hell, it's even better than the equivalent transition era layout, as modern passenger trains have a greater emphasis on frequency and on-time performance than practically any time outside of the 1900s, so you see them more often and get even more excitement than the same stretch of track 50 to 70 years ago. But I'd also argue it helps the layout to come more alive. If you have a freight-only layout, Sure, you can write on the waybills that this car is carrying coal for the power plant, and that car is carrying wood poles for the new power lines, but how much does that really matter to the layout if the people on it sit in front of the drugstore on a bench, licking ice cream, forever unmoving? Are they really benefited by that power moving through those power lines supported by those power poles? But if you run a passenger train... Suddenly, you get a sense of the life of the layout itself, too. In much the same way as I love riding trains through a bunch of different real-world cities to see how that city flows, you get a sense of the flow of your own layout as well. Where, when, and how a passenger train on your layout moves shows the importance of that movement to your miniature world, and you can make your miniature world become more alive by giving it that sense of importance and movement. All you have to do is schedule a passenger train along it. The specifics of how that train moves communicates what's going on in that community. You don't have to animate the movement of the figures or automobiles at all, just the activity of the passenger vehicles we already have control over, the passenger trains, shows that something of a specific, communicable importance is happening. And I think that that translates into the mind of the operators and viewers. All of a sudden, that's not just coal to a power plant or a log to a power line. That's the stuff that goes to power the existence of the people that live in this world. The people that you just saw, just now, on the train that passed by over there. It makes the layout makes so much more sense. It's no longer just a slice of the capitalism economy side of the world, but the whole world as it actually is outside. On this note, it's honestly funny to me how many people model railroads, but never actually any part of it that they themselves ever actually live in. Sure, you can cross at this level crossing here, but where's your office building overlooking the yard? Where's your commuter rail station? Where's your parking lot outside the grocery store you go to? Where's your park where you visit for picnics with your family? Where's your hiking and camping trail overlooking the railroad's mountain pass? Where's the segment of state highway where you try to pace the trains when they pass through? Where's the you in your railroad? Or why do you never choose to model a railroad with you in it? Why are the trains so segregated in our thoughts? The rails are for the economy, and the roads are for the consumers. That's so bleak. That's so 90s. We're like 30 or more years past from that. We can do better. The idea of modeling East-West Seattle-Spokane-Talgos was always a long-shot Basement Empire someday layout, something that would set up camp in the back of my mind as a really good idea, both for a real-world train and as a retirement layout, but not something that could be realistically worked towards, in either sense, right now, much less all on my little lonesome. But the idea stuck with me, and it gnawed at me. Every year of my life, I somehow saw reason to come back to that map. The train sets existed, the tunnels underutilized, the stations vacant. 
the only thing preventing service was the gumption of a lawmaker and a turnout flipping left at Auburn Yard. It was haunting. Chapter 6. Ukrainian State Railways then came 2021, the first year of the Biden presidency, and let's make clear that if you didn't cast your vote for a candidate with the nickname Amtrak Joe, the only reasonable conclusion is that you hate trains and thereby hate both model railroading and America. Please, leave this hobby. You are not welcome here. But, anyway, after years, decades, lifetimes spent praying to the gods that American passenger trains would finally, FINALLY get their due and even remotely begin to resemble a European network that would actually be cared for by elected officials in measure to how much we cared for and loved it and wanted to use it, we had a president by the nickname of Ukrzalis Nizia Dro in office and the tension was palpable. In the lead-up to the Bipartisan Infrastructural Bill, which, incidentally, is the single largest climate bill to ever be passed in all of human history, advocates were fantasizing about new projects, state DOTs were dusting off old environmental impact statements, but Amtrak was no slouch itself, and put together the impressive Connect Us project, which collated every planned rail expansion, from more frequencies at existing stations to extensions of lines to fully de novo greenfield routes which Amtrak has never, ever served before in its half-century century of history, stations which haven't seen a wheel turn in two or more generations, if ever. This is a tactic pioneered by the Seattle Subway, a spin-off advocacy organization of the Seattle Transit blog, which was able to put together and pass a ballot initiative bringing a mere $54 billion to build a regional light rail network in Seattle, rather than just one line. Incidentally, it's worth noting that this very example is one such way in which the western states are better than eastern states. Ballot initiatives. For the very simple hurdle of acquiring signatures, ballot initiatives allow voters themselves to directly usurp the elected lawmakers and come up with legal policy the lethargic apparatus of party politics wouldn't be able to do on its own. I cannot recommend this enough as a foundational pivot point of transit activism. If you care about trains in your community but your state doesn't allow ballot initiatives, start here. The motivation behind the strategy is simple. In voting, you need the buy-in of everybody in a taxation district, but to vote on a single line means it only benefits people in the few nearby neighborhoods that line would serve, and it is thus unlikely to pass. People in far-off neighborhoods think, why should I pay money to help those people but not myself? So, to solve this illogical but simple issue, the Seattle subway decided to propose a ballot measure that would bring light rail to most neighborhoods of the whole city and outlying suburbs all in one go. Therefore, you didn't have this neighborhood voting no on that neighborhood's transit and that neighborhood voting no on this neighborhood's transit. Instead, you had every neighborhood united together with every other neighborhood to fix the whole damn system all at once in a single move that benefited everybody. So too, as with the Seattle subway, did Amtrak make Connect Us, a map that showed investment in trains could benefit practically everyone, and man, did it seem to spur a national conversation. Practically every news outlet, large and small, was talking about it. It was astonishing how much press it drew. 
Their companion website discussing each individual route with daily frequencies and runtimes certainly added to the mix. And in thinking of future word modeling opportunities, the options were endless. The Northeast Corridor would finally be properly upgraded. It'll have West Coast equivalents, California high-speed rail, and Brightline between Los Angeles and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Las Vegas, respectively. There will be multiple daily trains between Tucson and Phoenix, as well as a likely rerouted Sunset Limited at a second daily frequency between Phoenix and Los Angeles. There's the long-awaited front-range passenger rail from Cheyenne to Denver to Pueblo, possibly Albuquerque. The mythical Texas Triangle will be completed from Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, and Fort Worth, with a possible leg being by high-speed rail in cooperation with Texas Central, which will have through ticketing with Amtrak, and there will be a series of overlapping Heartland routes with improved Fort Worth to Oklahoma City frequencies, as well as options from Oklahoma City to Wichita, Newton, and Kansas City. Multiple trains will go to the ever-so-undeserving Badger State. Let's take a moment once again to say fuck anyone who ever voted for Scott Walker or just any Republican generally. A route to Green Bay, the long-awaited diversion to Madison, and multiple lines to Minneapolis, one via Eau Claire, and the other on the existing Empire Builder route. The Gopher State gets its own Northern Lights Express, eight trains a day between Minneapolis and Duluth. Three new lines from Chicago, one to Toronto via Detroit, one to Rockford, Illinois, and the last to Iowa City via Iowa, with possible extensions to Cedar Rapids or Des Moines several in the eastern Midwest, a return of the Kentucky Cardinal from Chicago to Indianapolis and Louisville, and another to Cincinnati, the resurrection of the three C's, Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland, and an interesting idea I haven't heard much of until this proposal, or admittedly when I myself emailed the Biden administration prior to the announcement of the Connectus plan, so I'm going to take credit for you know what, let's just say the entire Connectus plan, why not? A Lake Erie shore runner going Detroit, Toledo, Cleveland, Erie, Buffalo. The Northeast will get its fair share, too. The Downeaster will get an extension from Brunswick to Rockland. Concord, New Hampshire will get a new route from Boston. The Ethan Allen Express already opened its extension from Rutland to Burlington, and hopefully soon, the Vermonter will get its own from Burlington suburbs to Montreal. Importantly, Boston to Albany, which serves Massachusetts' other major-ish cities, will get frequency upgrades from its currently one east-west train a day, which is even more pathetic when you consider the fact that Springfield gets 22 north-south trains a day between Amtrak and Connecticut's Hartford line, and Boston gets 38 north-south trains a day from just Amtrak alone. For some reason, Amtrak wants to run its own train along the Long Island Railroad to Riverhead, but it will also likely open new lines from Penn Station along the Lackawanna cutoff to Scranton, as well as through Central Jersey to Allentown and from Philadelphia to Reading. The Southeast will be getting incredible improvements compared to its presently mixed offerings. Virginia's titular runaway services will see improvements to Norfolk and Newport News, with an extension from Roanoke to Blacksburg. North Carolina will see a rerouting of existing long-distance services from Richmond directly to Raleigh, negating a backwards dogleg via Selma. It will also get improvements to the Raleigh to Charlotte Piedmont, with new routes or extensions on either end to Wilmington and Nashville. Georgia made bank on this map, with Atlanta going from one train a day each way to a dozen. The Crescent route will be getting an upgrade with multiple trains daily from Charlotte to Atlanta and Birmingham, and a new train will branch to Montgomery, and another route will complete the Southern Cross by going Nashville, Chattanooga, Atlanta, Macon, and ending in Savannah. The Gulf Coast will get a Baton Rouge New Orleans Mobile Corridor, and finally no slouch on its own Florida work, Amtrak will improve service along existing routes between Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa, and Miami, with I may note many more intermediate destinations than Brightline, as well as I may note many more intermediate hours. There are also many, many other routes under serious consideration not listed in the Connect Us map, including several long-distance routes, such as a return of the City of Los Angeles, Pioneer, or Olympian Hiawatha, as well as many other city corridors, but I'm already running long. Especially to someone considering a future word passenger corridor, this multitude of options was beyond tantalizing. But remember, this was just for fun, right? A far-off fantasy layout. Though, what about my current modeling projects?
Chapter 7. A Sense of Dread I genuinely did, and still do, love steam locomotives. In part because I've fully been indoctrinated by elderly issues of the hobby press I got my mitts on in libraries long ago, I fully fell for small New Englandy short lines, for narrow gauge in the Rockies, for westward pushing 1880s frontier towns, for sidewinding loggers on the Pacific coast, or bluntly for any steam locomotive anywhere, or any short line, any narrow gauge, any old timey train, and any logging railroad. I fully enjoy the concept of a steam locomotive leading a small train along a small branch line through the Berkshires or Green Mountains, and it is a legitimate subject to model. These overbuilt branch line empires had many small frequent passenger and freight trains which interchanged with each other and provided dense dynamic operations in quaint areas. I fully enjoy the concept of quirky narrow-gauge railroads winding through the tight canyons of the Rocky Mountains, and this is a legitimate subject to model. These charismatic railroads were technological marvels of their day, beating the odds of impossible terrain to extract valuable resources from incredible environments, with model railroads depicting the conveyor belts of industry. I fully enjoy the concept of a railroad on the frontier serving western towns, and this is a legitimate subject to model. Especially now, in an era of greater and deeper understanding, there are even more stories to tell from a multicultural perspective than have ever been told before, in a period which is already universally regarded as a dynamic and intriguing time. Never mind that their short locomotives and cars allow for trains to be dwarfed by scenery as dramatic as their tales. I fully enjoy the concept of geared locomotives making their slow dance in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest, hauling logs of incredible size down to the mills to feed a growing world, quirky operations of single purpose, sometimes fully isolated from anywhere else, and this is a legitimate subject to model. Their scenery and structures are rife for scratch building and detailing, allowing both nature and humanity to coexist in hyperfixation. More recently, I've come to appreciate the high iron. If ever you have the chance to see a big steam locomotive, consider it a mandatory pilgrimage. I got to see, five years ago, first 765, the Nickel Plate Road Berkshire, then 4449, the Southern Pacific Northern, and both were a practically fucking religious experience, seeing each locomotive in such mellifluous engineering fluidity, gracefully pulling forwards and back, steampunk Star Trek, as it were. While it takes exorbitantly more money and space to model mainline steam, there is certainly also merit to that, too. To have a layout where these magnanimous monsters, these benevolent behemoths of our own creation, can stretch their legs and fight the freight they've been tasked with for transport, such is truly a worthy goal of any layout. Overall, every steam locomotive, large and small, is an incredible achievement, a mechanical beast which inhales, eats, drinks, expels. Biochemically, a steam locomotive has a metabolism identical to our own. It just skips a few steps and needs a little help. If you haven't seen one in person, I cannot recommend it enough. Find your nearest tourist railroad, take a ride, donate lavishly, but... Arrive early, and just walk around, observe, take it in, listen, feel. If you pay attention, you might notice her breathe. 
every steam locomotive, in a sense, really is alive. And it is fully understandable why somebody would want to model this. It's hard for anyone to go down to a railroad museum and partake in these machines every weekend, and it's impossible to go back in time when these charismatic machines were ubiquitous, and while not impossible, it's veritably outlandish to acquire a steam locomotive of your own and play engineer when it suits you, so why not take a much more practical approach and honor these fantastical contraptions in miniature? Build them a playground through which they can realistically romp, not a full-scale zoo but a terrarium in which they wouldn't look out of place, a slice of history to a time which can never be gone back. And that's what I did. Many times, I tried. The fictional Irvine Valley Railway, the proto-Lance Bradley Wooded Timber Company, the prototype-based Kalitschahelison Cascade Railway, recognizable to anybody having driven between Seattle and Portland by a beautiful 90-ton Baldwin Mike, then the prototype-based Kennebec Central, and finally, my furthest along yet, the prototype-based Altoona and Beach Creek, or the amusingly acronymed A and B C. First 1890s Western, then Logging, then Narrow Gauge. First HO, then O. First Rocky Mountains, then Pacific Northwestern, then Northeastern, then Appalachian. I did, and I still do. Love me, a good steam locomotive. But in every railroad I modeled, there was always something wrong. As I obsessively researched various railroads, it became frustrating to me how little information survived, especially on some of the smaller lines further back in the past on the west coast. Would it have killed anyone to have taken a picture? The one chance I did have at any even remotely reliable information was on the last to survive, the Triple C, which was pulled up in the late 1950s. A bridge across generations, and attempting to better research the prototype, I was able to contact a railroader, Harold Borovec, who grew up in Chehalis, counted cars at the interchange in the morning on his way to school for the Triple C, learned to fire the locomotive, ran Engine 15 on the scrapping train, and ultimately helped to preserve it and many other steam locomotives in Washington State through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. As a naive 19-year-old, I met up with him one day at a diner and researching for my layout, paid for his meal and made a sizable donation to the Chehalis and Australia Scenic Railroad, and peppered him with questions for hours. I still distinctly remember asking him what color the ballast was, and he responded immediately deadbeat, green, implying a weedy unkemptitude. It was a miracle he was young enough then, and I was old enough now, for this touchstone to be made through the ages. Had the railroad been taken up even five years earlier, poof, that's it. The history would have been lost to me. Forever. And that's the fault in the equation. No matter how much I loved these railroads, that love wasn't enough to stem their demise. Maybe the fault was in my love for backwoodsy branch lines, but every line always fell into decay. Either they were relics of a different era and were overtaken by changing times and automobility, or they were faulted from the start, the subject of over-earnest overbuilding, perpetually impoverished through the majority of their tenure. And so, with every railroad I built, there was always a cloud looming in my mind. A cloud that, sure, yes, the railroad that I'm modeling, the layout in front of me, is prosperous now, but all too soon, it won't be, and all too soon after that, it'll be gone. Forever. Stricken from the record of humanity, with nothing left but a few repurposed buildings and some LIDAR shadows left by railroad grades. Scar architecture. I like steam locomotives, 
but every time I tried to model them, I was haunted by a sense of futility. As Sir Terry Pratchett once put it, no one is actually dead until the ripples they cause in the world die away. But many of the towns I was trying to model were damn well high alloyed, and the railroads, pff, vitreous. Maybe things might have been different if I had modeled mainline steam, or even a branch line that still exists today. I could have modeled something that I could still point to, walk to, go to, interact with. I could have made it up in my mind I was modeling something without such terminal tragedy, something that still did survive, and that I was just taking one slice out of an otherwise continuing history, that the ups and downs of history weren't so existential. But that's obviously not how it went. As it happened, the lore of the inimitable steam locomotive, a truly respectable one to be sure, yanked me so strongly through the pages of antiquity that the other frustrations became notable and, eventually, unignorable. Chapter 8 Jetzt angekommen auf gleich zwei, der near future so, now, I finally had all the parts. A long, simmering idea to make a layout based off a railroad following a passenger route which, though fully logical, was not reflected by fickle reality. A future-ish passenger train based on a reasonable bending of history, which also allowed me a geographic decoupling of this train set from any one location. A similarly long-simmering sense of dissatisfaction with the prototypes I had been modeling. And finally, a massive recent push for new passenger rail lines all throughout the country, all conveniently collated into one map. I made Part 1 Modern Transit in 2021 and presented it at Indy Junction in May 2022. I didn't debut Part 2 until January 2023 at the Springfield show of that year. As best as I can tell, the first time I published about the Las Vegas Talgo train set on the Patreon blog was June of 2021, track laying Part 2. By June of the next year, Railroads of Northern New England, and the PowerPoint document for Part 3, Modeling the Near Future, was created that September 2022, taking eight months of work until its debut the following May at Pittsburgh in 2023. While I made the presentation partially ex post facto, it recounts my whole journey of probing the idea, can I actually, seriously model an unbuilt passenger route? The first and most central thesis to my concept of modeling the near future, at least for now, is that any layout is just near future enough as to be functionally indistinguishable from a present-day layout. Maybe you have more electric vehicles on the roads, and maybe you focus more on only newer locomotives and rolling stock, but otherwise it's basically a modern-day layout. The idea behind Near Future is that you're using this as a mental archetype to choose a good prototype. Or, conversely, you're frustrated that they haven't built a passenger train down your prototype of choice, so you're fixing American car-brained legislative lethargy by accelerating things a bit. Either works. It can be a strict one-for-one, year-for-year, this takes five years to build, so I'm modeling it no earlier than five and a half years in the future, or it can be a looser, this is really how it should be, so I'll just make it that way anyway. The second tenant of modeling the near future is that it's now literally possible to model the near future as a prototype. Using State Department of Transportation document archives, you can now peruse all of what a DOT might be thinking of, from theoretical corridor analyses and 20-year plans, to construction alignments and building mock-ups. So, if you're a die-hard prototype modeler and interested in modeling more modern passenger railroading, prior to modeling the near future, your options were slim pickings at best. But by nudging the clock forward a little bit, more options opened up. Just look at the Amtrak Connectus map, and my point is made for me. 
Before, if you're a prototype modeler and want to model a modern intercity transit landscape relevant to young people and modern living, as well as highlight more climate-friendly lifestyles, you are limited to a network of seven and a half lines radiating out of Chicago, three lines in California, one in Washington State, and one half in North Carolina. Notice how I am not including the Northeast Corridor, because passively modern locomotives pulling AM fleets and high-speed train sets nearly as old as I am, traveling well below internationally agreed-upon high speeds through twice post and industrial Robert Moses-Sorified suburban hellscapes definitely does not qualify as modern. Start seriously considering them. This one's too long for your space, that one's too light in traffic, you can't get enough equipment for that one in your scale, and so on, and that already small number plummets even more precipitously. However, look forward just a few years to the new routes under consideration, swap in the new Siemens train sets into existing routes as well as boosting headways to, at minimum, three round trips daily, and those meager 13 possible prototype city pairs balloon to well over 50. Just nudge the clock forward, model an extant rail line but with an otherwise fully proposed and likely inevitable passenger service, and your ideal prototype goes from a pipe dream to right there. Finally, the driving force for modeling the near future, as uninhibitedly explained in the previous two prologues, I think that modern frequent intercity passenger rail, as well as hyper-frequent urban rail transit in the form of regional rail, stadbahns, subways, light rail, and streetcars, both liberally supplemented by bicycling, long distance and short, as well as walking, are the correct most ways to go about designing human transportation and living. This plays into real railroading in as much as a freight rail line not fully 100% saturated by freight trains is a passenger artery wasted. This plays into model railroading in as much as a model railroad without modern frequent passenger trains is an operating session more boring. And this plays into straight up life by helping, at least in some tiny way, see what I did there, to dethrone fossil fuel belching lifestyles from the mindset of the average citizen. With every person who runs a train on your railroad, who looks at a photo of your layout, who watches a video of your trains on YouTube, you're helping to chip away at this ossified car brain American obstruction reparousness. And maybe, just maybe, the next time they need to take a trip, they, or you, will take the train or light rail instead. In general, do the best you can with what you have, where you are. This means always do your best with everything. We can have the things we enjoy, we can have our chocolate cake, but it means we should choose it to be Palestinian chocolate cake, not Israeli genocidal chocolate cake. The point is, don't stop trying to influence things for the better just because the thing you're doing is purely or even largely indulgent. Find a way to balance the recreational aspects of the hobby with a continued activism for the better. If there's a particular thing you like about trains, and you think that there should be more of that particular thing, then goddammit, why not make a miniature world with more of that particular thing? Test run that world in miniature and show everyone how that world would be with more of that thing in it. That's after all why architects build miniature models. In my own particular case, I've road-tripped a lot over the past few years, belching murder by dinosaur upon future generations by lack of other options, but walking radicalization brought on by the pandemic, anti-car radicalization brought on by becoming a motorcyclist, and rail transit radicalization brought on by realizing that Europe exists, transformed me from a serial road-tripper into a homebody. Wondering every weekend not where I'd go, but if wither was worth the carbon emissions. It seldomly was. I cannot justify visiting small-town bumfuck-all-nowhere at the cost of climate arson. 
but I don't necessarily have to be trapped in my home. If I lived in, say, Chicago, I'd have options. I could, in fact, travel by a squint really hard, European-ish style regional rail network. Still no Flughafen Express, but Crossrail Chicago ain't dead yet. But if I did live in Illinois, I'd now have access to the dozen trains on a half dozen routes radiating out of Chicago Union Station, most with multiple departures daily, most now with modern European-style locomotives and amenity passenger cars. Now, wouldn't that be a way to live? So, overall, in the most utter briefs, the idea behind modeling the near future is not just to basically model the present, but in a particular way to better proto-freelance the present. It's not just to better proto-freelance a modern passenger route by opening up the number of viable prototypes by nearly an order of magnitude. It's mostly to model the present as it ought to be. It's an alt-history. It's the present, but if the past had been done correctly. Not by car-brained, libertarian, self-absorbed, white-picket-fence-pilled, satanic-panic-fearing idiots, but by people actually caring to improve their communities in an evidence-based, impact-focused, inclusively-minded manner. Making a model world as it ought to have been, not for the Reagan right and moral majority diversion our society took and the rest of the developed world largely didn't. Making a model world I would rather live in, rather than the real one I have to. Well, for now at least. Unless I move to Germany. Which would be remarkably easy, because they just liberalized their immigration laws, allowing citizenship in as little as three years. Thank you, Feely. Fuck you, Texas. Chapter 9. Collateral Benefits So, for all of my blatherings, how do we actually end up in, of all places, Rochester, Minnesota? Well, when Amtrak's Connect Us map came out, I examined a lot of routes by way of the OpenStreets map, which I found more useful for prototype research than Google or other maps because, among other things, such as better labeling tracks and industries, OpenStreets map comprehensively identifies each segment of railroad track, telling you which spur, branch, or subdivision it is a part of, something extremely useful for subsequent follow-up research, such as on the type and density of freight traffic that line sees, things you would want to know to evaluate the viability of a particular rail line for its modelability. I looked into a few fairly seriously. Chicago to Rockford was one that initially caught my eye because it was so short and achievable, but subsequent developments made that the municipal equivalent of stepping on a rake. Tucson to Phoenix, too, better initially, because on either end there were incredibly successful streetcar or light rails, as well as, you know, major space-related universities I could possibly postdoc at, but Phoenix isn't exactly known as an urbanism or climate resilience mecca, although, to be fair, it is making great strides, especially with cul-de-sac. I personally didn't have too much of a connection to the Deep South, so that ruled out much of the Southern Cross, maybe Atlanta to Charlotte, because Charlotte is very young, hip, and has great and innovative light rail and streetcars, but it's still a long intercity passenger route with many more stations than can be done on all but the largest of home layouts. I stalled until I found the Northern Lights Express. Eight trains a day between Minneapolis and Duluth, but only five or six stations, and I think only two train sets. That's down into mid-sized model railroad territory. Hell, more has been done with less, in smaller than 10 by 20 way back with a few adventurous twice or thrice arounds by John Armstrong. But in terms of strict prototype modeling, eh... 
Both the Twin Cities and Twin Ports have a mess of tracks impossible to model faithfully. Moreover, the Duluth Station Museum doesn't exactly scream future, and at the time it was politically uncertain, so I didn't want to model a near-future passenger train for it to later be unceremoniously cancelled, and my model railroad to then forever remind me of a future which ought to have been, but then was rent asunder from us by self-serving idiot rurals. Finally, a look into the freight traffic of the line revealed it to have a series of low-lying bridges precluding intermodal traffic, resulting in only dull, infrequent unit aggregate traffic like grain and ore, and this is probably their only reason why MnDOT could have ever remotely gotten any freight railroad to consider a whoppingly dense passenger schedule over the line. <sighs> Minneapolis is somewhat of an urbanist destination. It has, to my understanding, the highest number of bikeway miles per capita of any city in the country. It has two of the most successful light rail lines, each currently being extended to make a great big X through the region. The only thing it's missing is a streetcar, for which one is currently under construction, and intercity passenger trains, for at least two are under development, the NLX being one. Oh, and did I mention the NLX would connect with the Northwoods, a major outdoorsy destination? or that it has a major molecular biology and space-related university, only the 17th best in all of human history, and a majorly active NMRA division. It's pretty much as perfect a place as I could ever possibly hope for. Literally, I made a spreadsheet, and it floated to the top, and I'm certain I'll turn that spreadsheet into a main sequence episode sometime soon. So imagine how devastated I was that the NLX wasn't the perfect modeling subject I was hoping for all along. Literally everything else I was looking for in my life was pointing me to the North Star state. At this, I became slightly demoralized and spent a few months adrift. But I didn't let go of all the work I'd put into research, or the PowerPoint presentation I'd already started. Despite never having lived in Minnesota, despite never having lived within 900 miles of Minneapolis, despite at my closest having lived three states away from Minnesota, I all of a sudden happened to know an astonishing amount of the local and regional transportation infrastructure. And with this knowledge came expertise. And with this expertise came my quintessential irate frustration. Fair warning, this is about where you start to need a map. Look up a rail map of Minnesota, or watch the clinic part three on the website, whether I have this thought process very helpfully animated. The following gets quite intense with geography, and that's taking into account the segment just a few minutes ago when I named just basically every city in the US over half a million people. Among my speculative escapades, I became familiar with the failed 2015 attempt at a high-speed rail line between Minnesota's three largest cities, Minneapolis, Rochester, and the other one. As far as regional transit goes, this is fundamentally brilliant, because Rochester is home of the Mayo Clinic, one of, if not the most singularly prestigious medical research and administrative clinics in the world. But, to my understanding, there are currently zero public transit options between it and the nearest major public airport, MSP, and that includes airplanes. But, at 80 miles, that's the ideal distance for passenger trains. Too short to fly, too long to drive. Not to mention non-airport regional passengers who weren't in a plane to begin with. But there's one minor plan in this flaw. 
There has never ever been a direct rail line between the Twin Cities and Rochester. So here's my idea. As part of a better regional rail outbuilding, maybe let's just construct a little greenfield track, say 160 kilometers, nobody would ever notice, to connect Northfield with Rochester and then maybe Rochester with Austin, Minnesota. Then you can have a north-south Amtrak route that makes up for its east-west diversion through state-owned high-speed capable track through greenfield or highway medians, calling it Minneapolis. Minneapolis, Rochester, Mason City, Ames, and Des Moines. But, say that this hypothetical passenger service were to be enacted, not only could you extend the Northern Lights Express southward to serve Rochester, not only could you extend the North Star commuter rail south from Target Field Station to Northfield, if you were to build a state-owned rail link from Rochester to Northfield, only 88 or so greenfield kilometers through otherwise easy-to-construct flat fields, three possibilities open up. First, you can reroute the two eastward trains from St. Paul to Chicago, the Empire Builder and its abbreviated schedule, sometimes misidentified as the Mini Builder, the new Twin Cities Milwaukee Chicago, now renamed the Great River, though I prefer its hypothetical planning acronym, the TCMC. These are two trains that run along the Mississippi to La Crosse before peeling away for a tantalizingly close call to Madison before thudding into Milwaukee, then peeling off the wall of Lake Michigan and splorting onto Chicago. These trains will run anyway, whether there's funding for a raw Rochester bypass or not. So, if the MnDOT zip rail cutoff is built, here's what you could do. Reroute the TCMC and the builder from Winona to Rochester, then up the MnDOT bypass to Northfield, up the Dan Patch line from Northfield to Target Field, then resuming their normal routing. This gets a bonus four trains a day between Rochester, Minnesota, population 226,000 people, compared to its current calling at Red Wing, Minnesota, population 17,000. Sure, Red Wing, being a suburb-ish of the Twin Cities, could and should be served by a regional Stadbahn, say even of the diesel varietal, and should have continuing eastward connections with the Builder and TCMC at Winona, Minnesota, but Rochester, being of a full order of magnitude larger in population, deserves a one-seat ride as well as more frequent connections to the Twin Cities. Secondly, at current, the Empire Builder calls at St. Paul Union Depot, or SPUD, on the east side of town, and the planned TCMC and Amtrak to Eau Claire will do the same. However, the North Star commuter rail calls at Target Field Station in Minneapolis on the west side of town, and the Northern Lights Express will also likely do so as well. While these two stations are connected by the green line of Metro's light rail, they're over an hour apart of lugging your suitcase off the train, up the platform, out of the station, to the light rail, then getting a separate fare, navigating to the clear other side of town, through another station, down another platform, and onto another train. This is a far cry from the same station or even cross-platform transfer offered by many a Hauptbahnhof in Europe. This is a problem begging to be solved, especially now in the planning phase. So, if ZipRail to Rochester was built and the Builder and TCMC go to Northfield, they could turn right and go back to Spud, or they could turn left and up the reactivated Dan Patch line, which, as aforementioned, is the natural extension out of Target Field Station for the North Star and regional mobility. Thus, presto, with this one project, you get yet another bonus benefit and solve the Twin Cities' split regional rail hubs by consolidating everything into one station, Target Field. The third thing that occurs is on the freight side. To my understanding, there is significant freight congestion in the St. Paul area yards. 
In addition to whatever sort of switching opportunities there might be along the way in Rochester, Northfield, Savage, and Richfield, with such short lines as the Minneapolis, Northfield, and Southern, and Progress Rail, there's now a decent excuse for at least Canadian Pacific, now CPKC, to rent time from MnDOT as a way to get their freight trains around said morass, especially because the Dan Patch Line can easily dump either into west side Minneapolis yards or full-on westbound main lines. Thus, any sort of hotshot freight or measly peddler needing even the lightest touch of a bypass would have a decent excuse to be rerouted along this new line. For being a small 7x14-foot layout focused on a single passenger station, I now have a decent excuse to run as dense a freight Gatling gun as I ever could want. For every alt-history NLX Talgo, there's an intermodal double stack. For every Siemens Midwest Corridor train set, there's a grain train. For every Empire Builder, there's a manifest freight. Chapter 10. But what about modern transit? Well, if there's one thing I've learned from Europe, it's that every station should have intermodal connections. A station driven to is a station wasted. Rochester is currently building a bus rapid transit system, and the scientific literature proves that BRT develops less ridership per dollar spent, per revenue hour, and per operator hour. So it makes sense they will someday recognize this error and will upgrade it to a rail transit system. Thus, naturally, out front of Rochester Station will be a streetcar slash light rail system, served by Siemens S70s whenever Bachman comes out with those. Or alternatively, I can have those 3D printed. But here's my favorite idea, my most truly ingenious insight. The current existing rail line from Minneapolis to Rochester through Northfield is via Awatona. To build a Greenfield high-speed rail line from Northfield direct to Rochester bypasses the upstanding citizens of Awatona. In building the futuristic high-speed intercity rail we were all promised generations ago, stymied by boomer neoliberalism, we certainly wouldn't want to leave anyone out. So, here's the idea. Build the high-speed Greenfield Rail to Rochester anyway, but appease the good citizens of Awatona at having been bypassed by connecting them to the new line with a frequent DMU service, extending from Awatona to Rochester, maybe through it, to, say, St. Charles, Minnesota. Today, many who work in Rochester live and commute along this excessively east-west dimension, living in suburban developments along these formerly small agrarian towns which grew up along the Dakota, Minnesota, and eastern, knee Chicago and northwestern mainline heading through town. Thus, taking this and future growth into account, it makes sense to connect these towns together as suburbs, but in a more sustainable, walkable, transit-oriented manner, such that doctors, nurses, support staff, and secondary service and retail workers can live in quieter, potentially more affordable distal communities, but be reliably connected with the major central community and its employers with, say, 15-minute service during peak, half-hourly headways throughout the day, and absolutely no less frequently than hourly throughout the night, 365 days a year, to guarantee transit accessibility and car-independent lifestyles for residents of these communities. As transit advocates say, frequency is freedom. Additionally, as far as model railroading goes, whilst I might be a bit of a passenger rail fanatic, I recognize I might want to touch more intrigue than from one staging yard via one of two directions to one station. 
So on the main level, and this isn't in the clinic on the website yet, I only just thought of this idea in October, I'll have to update it someday, I'll have the DMUs continue eastbound around the backdrop to a terminal station in St. Charles in a small tight switching puzzle, likely of a granary, maybe with a food processing plant, a small electric arc furnace for steel recycling, or some interesting and future green industry like an electric bicycle or solar panel factory, also all ideally right next to a hip renovated industrial beer garden. But if I get yet further bored with a passenger train heavy line, I could have the DMU continue westward from Rochester, arc around the room once more the other way, and up to a second level. Maybe it could continue its run to Awatona with an operations and maintenance facility, maybe a suburban park and ride, maybe I could fight that trend with a nice walkable terminus in downtown Awatona, but the main purpose of this extension would be several larger freight industries along the way and several small switching districts in Awatona, maybe run by a short-line conglomerate like Progress Rail, Genesee in Wyoming, or Minneapolis Northfield and Southern. Chapter 11. So, let's recap. Level of service top to bottom. Long distance trains. Check. I've rerouted Amtrak's Empire Builder for a once-a-day, each-way appearance on the route. I have Bachman's ALC42s on order and a fleet of cheapo Walther's Superliners from eBay, which I'll slowly upgrade with details and better models as time and funds become available. Amtrak Midwest. Check. I already have a Bachman Midwest Charger, and I'll be waiting on pre-orders of the four modern Siemens Charger passenger cars. For the time period I'm modeling, arbitrarily set 20 years in the future, so, from the birth date of the idea, Rochester, Minnesota, 2043. These cars will already be showing their age, so I'd imagine that they'd be relegated to secondary service, so in this case, once a day between the Twin Cities, Rochester, Ames, and Des Moines, Iowa. Amtrak's future era train sets? Check. Bachman's already making the Via Rail Corridor train sets for Canada, so literally all they'll need is a change of the cab design and paint scheme. The moment they make them in American colors, I'll buy them and set them to use on the TCMC. Seriously, at this rate, I should look into getting a sponsorship from Bachman. I already know I already gave you all my deets on the website at Springfield, so drop me an email if you're listening. Sponsorship or not, I have some great ideas, and I'd love to see you all become the patron saint of sticking it to the boomers, because you kind of already have, and I love you for it. The Las Vegas Talgo. Check. Well... You've already heard this story enough times. Currently, I'm finishing up repainting the Bachman Surfliner Charger, then I'll get to detailing it. I have the two wing cars and two regular cars of the train set fully completed, and I'm halfway through repainting the remaining five intermediate cars, so soon enough I'll have a nine-car train set. Now that I have a production line set up, it'll be trivial to order an extra car or two or three or four off eBay and bring them up to a full, prototypical 13-car train set, or as long as my Rochester layover track will allow, I should probably stop writing or recording this, go down and actually measure how long it is. And yes, by the time period of this layout, this particular train set would already be well past its prime, but we can imagine that it would have been rebuilt by Breach Grove once or twice or thrice, and really it is such a distinctive and futuristic train set that it really wouldn't be out of place. In fact, I'm already thinking of building a second train set, possibly even sourcing the wing cars from a different supplier, and the minor differences between the two I could just wave off as making them a different later version, a continued history that ought to have been the Talgo 10s we should have had. 
Anyway, the Las Vegas Talgos will be playing the part in Mindot Colors as the Northern Lights Express extended through Target Field Station south of Rochester. Seeing as it's a slightly supra-regional line connecting Minnesota's first, second, and fifth largest cities to the north, Minneapolis, St. Paul by Light Rail, and Duluth, it would make sense to extend it south and connect the third and fourth largest cities, Bloomington and Rochester, as well, in addition to the 10th, 14th, 15th, 17th, 19th, 20th, 29th, and 30th, Blaine, Burnsville, Coon Rapids, Apple Valley, Adina, St. Louis, Park, Andover, and Savage, respectively, but who's counting? Regional Rail? Check. Historically called commuter rail, and now called Stadbahns, or RERs, depending on its routings through the city, I'll be upgrading the North Star to all-day service, maybe even all night, and extending it to St. Cloud like it ought to have been all along. If I someday have a larger layout, it would make much more sense to extend the North Star only to Northfield and make it really only a true metro area system, but for the purposes of this layout, Athern already made the cars and locomotives, and I already bought them off of eBay, so I may as well have the line extended a little further. Mindunk can coordinate the NLX and North Star schedules to further optimize frequencies between Rochester and the Twin Cities, or even more theoretically, can reroute the NLX through Target Field and the North Star through Spud, restoring bi-metro regional service. But that's off layout. DMUs, check. With the bulk of the layout's final two deck formed focused on switching areas in St. Charles and Awatona, the DMUs will similarly make this trek, stopping everywhere the freight does. And, much like a good freight train, the DMUs will be interchanging passengers with the outside world at the interchange track, er, I mean, Rochester Intermodal Station. Light Rail? Sigh. This is the one technology I haven't been able to fully integrate into this otherwise astonishingly accomplished 2.2 by 4.4 meter operation. If I ever extend the layout north to Minneapolis, the Dan Patch Line will run adjacent to the Southwest LRT extension of the Green Line for a few dedicated right-of-way stations, and I'm certain I could build in an LRT to NLX cross-platform transfer for at least one of those, and automate the LRT for some beautiful pacing along the rest. But for this layout, I have to get my kicks over the fact that LRT, especially in urban areas, shares a lot of characteristics with... Streetcars! Check! I'll be using my 20 years in the future archetype in hopes that Rochester will recognize the high operating cost folly of their BRT, and that it is only fiscally responsible to upgrade the BRT to a streetcar, so Rochester Intermodal Station will have a dedicated right-of-way tram running out front of the station. So, in summary, with a fully rational, logical, and entirely possible, if currently politically infeasible, tweak to the regional transportational infrastructure, just 55 greenfield miles, and a few dozen or more high-speed upgrades to existing track, we are not talking California high-speed rail here and bringing modern trains to our grandchildren's grandchildren for the cost of an entire subcontinent's GDP, and then taking this tweak and making other existing transit projects in the region respond to it, I all of a sudden have a reasonable excuse to run practically every single passenger train I could ever want to through a small passenger station on a medium-small layout in only 7 by 14 feet. That's a pretty damn fucking amazing accomplishment. And I didn't have to touch the transition era to do it. Chapter 12. Crashing Reality, But Happy Compromises. Now, unfortunately, this is not a perfect layout. Among other things, if you watch the clinic, you'll notice one glaring issue that, in order to achieve this, I initially designed this layout to share a sliding drawer staging yard with the ON30 layout. Currently, I've gone so gung-ho for this layout concept that the ON30 layout is now a fully abandoned layout off to the side, so fat lot of good that did me. And, yes, the irony of an abandoned narrow-gauge railroad is not lost on me. 
But part of this involved placing the sliding drawer portion on the railroad's only free side, making it a donut-shaped layout with a central 30-inch wide operating aisle, requiring a 4-foot deep duck under in order to access. Which, among other things, is hardly ideal. But I'm young. I'll survive. I can bend over. And this is hardly the final iteration of the layout. As I imagine, when I later get more space at the light end, I'll slice the layout longer and add two helixes on either end and make it a walk-in design. At the heavy end, I'll fully excise the scenes out from their current arrangement and completely rework the entire plan, reusing what I can salvage while preserving the layout concept. Part of what's facilitating this is that I've built the layout in five-ish modules. The 3x11-foot sliding drawer staging yard, two 2x6-foot turnback modules, a 1x5x11-foot ascent module which will feature the MnDOT tracks running down the highway median while the other directions tracks sneak beneath the foreground highway lanes, and then the fifth module of 4x11-feet floating above the sliding drawer staging yard holding Rochester itself. I've made all the modules benchworks separable, but I've laid the tracks contiguously over it, so when I do move, it should just be as simple as dremeling over the tracks at the joints and yanking whatever scenery I've laid down apart, as well as clipping the wiring underneath. I haven't made it portable so much as transportable. Worst case scenario, I move to Europe, create the two most important modules, salvage the track from the others, and then up and move what I can, dumpster the rest, and start again. At least I'm starting from something, and I won't be restarting from nothing. Still, I have wasted a lot of money on ON30, though. Anybody want to buy it? An unfortunate aspect of all of this, I am, at current, a bit of a lone wolf modeler. Partially my own doing, partially that of being in a small, more remote college town, partially other things, I don't have a local operating or construction crew, nor do I think that's necessarily a bad thing at the moment. Maybe this will, at some later point, nucleate into a larger basement filler which will necessitate a village to care after it, but that point is not now and not yet. That fact leads into several interesting implications. Firstly, I do not have a fully fleshed out operating scheme or plan. The first operating session will likely be of the persuasion of, I want to see the Empire Builder now. So, in a sense, for all of my bemoaning over the past, what am I up to? 24 entries, not including the 2014 15-ish stillborn version with Nathan, that you should always design for prototypical operations? Here I am effectively freelancing now, right? Well, not quite. While I can basically run whatever I want, whenever I want, my services do run on defined routes on high frequency, so they can be seen practically whenever, but not willy-nilly. I shan't be driving the DMUs to Minneapolis over the high iron, nor shall I be taking the North Star to a whistle stop at a grain silo. The high frequency gives me the flexibility just to pick up a throttle and go whenever I feel like it, pretending like I'm a transit operator, almost like many rail-related video games these days, like anyone could do on a PC or PlayStation, like Train Z Sim or Train Sim World or Sim Rail or Derailed Valley. But if I get bored of that, I can pick up a freight train from the staging yard and haul it to St. Charles or later Awatona and do some regular-ass switching like any old model railroad. Most model railroads have only one of these options, mine will have both. If I do get bored of that, I can come up with an abbreviated, sequence-based series of operations, roughly depicting a day's work at Rochester, but achievable by one person. Maybe a dystopian American alt-history in which it receives far fewer trains than it ought to. 
but for now I can basically treat things as a rail fanning paradise. I can't go out and see these things in my daily life because they're too few, too far between, or simply don't exist. But here, though, again, I emphasize through fully reasonable, logical, and possible extrapolations, they can all exist in my basement. Someday, if I have enough people willing to cram themselves in the tiny aisle and strong-arm the sliding drawer back and forth, holy hell can we run an obsession. Maybe then, if I can arrange that, I'll consider expanding with such otherwise unnecessary and luxurious amenities as aisles and access. Overall, again, this is not a perfect layout, and in its form, it never could be, no matter how many modifications I make it. This is more a medium-scale testbed of a radically different idea that I don't think anybody has ever really tried before in the hobby, and I'm here to report back how it goes. Modern intercity passenger trains and frequent DMUs through small switching areas, all in less than 100 square feet. <laughs> Holy fuckery. Rochester itself is less a precise prototypical modeling destination for me and more a place as I wish it were. I'm not intending to model actual prototype structures except maybe one or two of extremely charismatic note and even then likely out of place and out of order. Otherwise, I'll likely remake the entire urban fabric in my own image and as I see fit, again not to represent a prototype but more to represent what I wish more places were and what I wish I was visiting when I stepped off these futuristic trains, which I re-emphasize including the Talgo 6s, all of which can be deboarded in North America today right now. To take all of these trains to a parking lot is an insult, see Prologue Episodes 1 and 2. There will be pedestrian plazas, bicycle lanes and trails, a dramatic station headhouse I have every intention of being designed by Santiago Calatrava, and tons and tons of streeteries and breweries and hip restaurants and coffee shops that stay open until at least midnight and have more than four pastries and two seasonal lattes. Places I'd love to hang out. Places worth hanging out. Populated with lots of mini prints. I know I accost you a lot, Bernard. But this is why. Because you're my only avenue to this. A model world not just of my own creation, but a model world worth living in. Hang in there. Someday soon, I'll be your best customer. I promise. I hope you can understand my fascination. Nobody else comes close to being able to supply me this. And you are truly the Forrest Gump of model railroading. Run, Bernard. Run. So, in sum, Rochester, as I envisage it, isn't just a specific place as much as it could be an any place. Not a generic place, which could be an anywhere, but a place which everywhere should strive to become. The type of small town which I'd happily live in. An ideal, solar-punk, climate-friendly future to which everywhere should aspire. Until that point, however, small-town America shan't be getting any of my tax money so long as small-town America has anything less than five Amtraks a day, each way. This has been Prologue 3 of the Proto-Future podcast, Rochester, Minnesota. The theme music is Spark of Life by Benjamin Lazarus through Tribe of Noise. 
If you would like to know more, you can visit the website at www.bgtmrring.org to listen to the manifesto and the other prologue, read the free-to-access Patreon production blog, and I will continue to host and post the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading, so if you like my one-to-one -one evenly spaced and deeply curated musings on how to help people build their first layout, as well as my current project, possibly building a first-of-its-kind layout describing a type of modeling which has never been done before. Please consider donating on the per-episode basis to help defer hosting and equipment costs, because this shit is fucking expensive. I have, at current, only one extremely generous patron, Pedro Reyes, who is himself barely covering the cost of the admittedly delicious website. And now that things have ticked up to monthly, Pedro, I would fully understand it if you decided to limit your liberal munificence. But in the meantime, to the rest of you, I beg of you, even so much as a buck a month not only covers the cost of the website and the new field recorder I had to get for this new project, but more importantly, it tells me that the portion of my time, my life, and my heart that I carve out of myself and throw into the ether every month isn't for naught. If you have any appreciation for this moonly monkey dance I say and do here, please do throw me some change. As my promise to you for this final prologue of proto-future, it means more to me on an emotional level than it could to you pecuniarily, and anything you give me, even a single dollar a month, means I will have all that much more reason to keep going. Maybe it will even reach a point where I can someday, someday reach fortnightly, bi-weekly, semi-weekly. We shall see, we shall see, we shall see. This podcast was written, recorded, and produced on the ancestral lands of the Susquehannock tribe. I would like to thank them for their historical stewardship of central Pennsylvania. Extra special thanks to Tom Barbelay of Model Rail Radio, not only for his long-standing stewardship of the hobby, but also for his kind insight, editorial counsel of this episode, and platforming of my grand project. Thank you very much for listening. Keep riding trains, keep punching Nazis, and keep building a better future. Here's a behind-the-scenes clip for you. The original audio file for this episode was 2 hours and 36 minutes long. Since it took so much out of me to record it all in one go in order to try and keep the audio quality consistent and not sound like it was coming from multiple different recording sessions, it led to several sentences being cut just because I garbled some of the words and didn't notice it at the time. Uh, here's an example. To my understanding, there is significant freight congestion in the St. Paul area yards, to the extent that Amtrak even once extended the end-to-end -end timing of the Empire Builder three yards just for Twin Cities area freight traffic. I clearly meant three hours, but because I have much more often used the term years, I crashed years and hours together into yards. So I couldn't use that sentence and had to cut it out and use a different take.